0: Thank you for, as we were reminded in the songs and in your word earlier this morning, that you have conquered great enemy of our souls, and through your son's death on the cross, we can have a way to know you. Thank you that you have not abandoned us, that you have not left us, that you have not, uh, uh, Lord, allowed us to continue in our path of sin, but that you intervened and and showed us the beauty of Your Son and granted us repentance, Lord. Grant us the opportunity to know You and serve You. Thank You for Your Word and the beautiful and wonderful truths within it. Lord, may this morning we be more um, illumined by those truths. And that may we be more able to live out through Your Spirit the, what You've called us to do. And give us understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, every um, a couple of times a month, I get a, a newsletter from uh, the seminary that I attended, Master's Seminary, and they like to send out updates on uh, the various graduates and things that are going on there. And um, oh, Steve and Stephanie, see you. Congratulations, by the way. So, sorry I missed you earlier. <laughs> um, why'd you interrupt me? What was I saying? Uh, oh, So, I get this uh, article, and it's... Um, this about September time frame, there was a, an article from a man I know, I've known a long time, and he's now in the Ukraine. He's been there about 20 years, uh, working in a seminary there. And he, he tells an incredible testimony, and it's a, a picture I want to show you. The man on the left, uh, his name is Sergey. Uh, he was uh, a person, he grew up as a terribly abused orphan in the Ukraine. And when he had gotten to adulthood, he wanted to seek revenge on those who had abused him. And so he joined a group of Satanists. And he wanted help from them to take care of, take revenge on those who'd mistreated in the orphanage. But this, as a result of being a part of that group, also led to severe drug addiction. And he was uh, suffering from that for quite a while. Uh, the man standing next to Sergey here is a man named Pastor Nikolai. His church uh, uh, supports and runs a gospel-focused drug rehabilitation program uh, it is focused on the gospel. It is a Christian-based program. And desperate for help one day, Sergei shows up at this rehab center. Nikolai was there. And he began sharing the gospel with Sergei and praying for him. And as he was doing that, Sergei was thrown on the ground. And uh, Pastor Nikolai said he heard voices that sounded like they were coming from the basement saying, we're not going anywhere. Well, Nikolai and then... After that happened, he called others in the church immediately and asked them to begin praying for Sergei. And at that point, Sergei was being thrown all over the floor. That's why you see the wounds on his face there that he was inflicted by this whole experience. Eventually, Sergei was able to get up, but he was still prevented from speaking. So Nikolai and another man who was with him continued to pray, continued to share the gospel with him, continued to tell him of the power of Jesus Christ in his life. After about three hours of this, Sergei was finally able to speak. And it was then that he declared his desire to repent, put his trust in Jesus Christ to save him. It's an amazing testimony. This man was truly rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, and you know, when I first read this testimony, I was so encouraged, I was a praise to see God at work in this man's life to deliver him from his bondage to sin and to Satan, to drugs. But I was also reminded from Sergei's story of a reality, a reality that we have a powerful enemy, that we have an enemy who is active. For you see, Sergei's testimony is not a Hollywood scripted tale. It is not an embellished account of some missionary looking for funds. And so he's going to share some exciting, embellished story about something that happened in his church. No, Sergei's testimony shows us that there is a very real, though unseen world of beings who are actively involved in the affairs of humanity. In fact, uh, Daniel chapter 10, which um, I call probably the trippiest chapter in the Bible, to me anyway... Because it's a fascinating look, there's not many places in Scripture where the curtain is peeled back and the reality of what's going on in the spirit realm is revealed. Daniel 10 is one of those places. It was there where Daniel, he first received a a vision of future events, of a great conflict that was to come. And the pictures that he saw greatly troubled him, so much so that he had difficulty eating for a while. Several weeks had passed, and and Daniel had another vision. This time it was from a shining being whose voice sounded like thunder. Needless to say, when this man arrived, Daniel was scared out of his boots, or his sandals, I guess. And this angel, who was likely Gabriel, he said to Daniel in Daniel 10, uh, verse 12, Don't be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding the vision... And on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for twenty-one days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision pertains to the days yet future." I don't know if you caught what was going on there. When Daniel first had this vision, it bothered him. And at that very moment, as he was praying to God, God dispatched Gabriel to go to him, to help him give give understanding to him, to encourage him. But there was a problem. Gabriel was delayed for three weeks, not because of traffic, He was delayed because another powerful spirit being was fighting him, was grappling with him. It says that he was withstood by one he called the prince of Persia or ruler of Persia. This was a demon. They were actually fighting and battling for three weeks. That's why Gabriel was not able to reach Daniel immediately. The only reason that Gabriel finally made it was because of the super angel Michael showed up and allowed him to be freed up to go to Daniel. And then when he finished speaking to Daniel and explaining things to him, Gabriel then told him this, But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia. I guess their battle wasn't finished. So I'm going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. Can you picture what's going on here? This is a fascinating account. Again, where the curtain is peeled back and we're shown that real battles are taking place between angels and demons. I mean, this sounds like Hollywood kind of stuff, but it's really happening if we believe the Bible is true, and it is. Battles whose outcome not only affect within the spirit realms, but also the circumstance, they affect the circumstances here on earth. Again, this universe is not about us. There's a real war going on all around us. And as I was thinking about this passage, thinking about Daniel 10 this week, I kept kind of looking up wondering, I wonder what's going on now. Because there are demons, there are demons located in these regions. You can see that there are powers that have seems to be given, seem to have assignments given to them of various locations around the earth, and I'm certain there is a prince of Burbank. Certain there are many that have their eyes focused on this church, and on the other churches here who are teaching the word of God. They have their eyes on each of us as well. The universe. It's full of these spirit beings, full of a war that is taking place. It's a cosmic battle and it's one that we are all part of. And so as Paul got to the end of this letter to the Ephesians, he wanted to make sure that he warned them, that he instructed them about this very real battle that was taking place. He wanted them and us to know that we are in a war. So if you please turn to Ephesians 6, where Greg read from a few moments ago, we're going to focus our attention on the first few verses but here in Ephesians six ten through 20, many see this text as one of the most, if not the most extensive passage in the Bible on spiritual warfare. Looking again at Ephesians 6, verse 10, Paul says, "...Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil." For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Here we see that first word, finally. Finally is telling us that Paul is reaching a conclusion in this letter. We're reminded here. That Paul, remember, had been writing this letter to encourage those in Ephesus, to encourage them to relish the riches that they had in Christ, and also to encourage them to respond rightly to those riches. Again, Ephesians 4.1 is a key verse of the letter where he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore or urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And then from that very verse, 4, chapter 1, all the way through 6, 9, Paul gives instruction after instruction of what that worthy walk looks like. And he instructs us in many different areas. He instructs us how to walk in unity and in love. How we should treat one another in the body of Christ. How we should live when we are under authority. And how we should live if we are one in authority. He instructs us on how to live in holiness, in purity, in purity. That we are to forgive one another, submit to one another, encourage one another. He gives instruction on how we should yield to the Spirit's control, how we should be imitators of God, and many other things. And Remember when this letter was first read, it was read entirely to the church at Ephesus, and they're hearing all this instruction after instruction, the the call to love, the call to sacrificially care for one another, to be pure, to focus on holiness, to not walk as they used to walk, to not live the lifestyle they used to have. And after all these instructions, I could imagine, because I felt this way going through this letter, how can I live this way? How can I do all of these things? To love in this way, to be pure in this kind of world, to live out the gospel, this is a high standard. It's a difficult standard. It is a hard standard. So I think Paul, in recognizing that fact, as he reaches uh, the end of his letter, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Be strengthened in him, in his mighty power. Don't rely on yourself to do all these things, but rely on his power. He has enabled you to be able to live out all of these different things, all of the instruction that I've given you. He hasn't given these things as requirements for being a Christian, as if to say, okay, now I've saved you. Now it's all up to you to keep my rules. Got it? It's not it at all. He has saved us so we would be like Christ. And Paul wants to remind us in his strength, you can do that. He enables us by his grace. By his grace, we've been saved. And by his grace, we are sanctified. And we need to continually remind ourselves of that. And so Paul does here. Reminds us, be strengthened. Find your strength in Christ. Notice the verb there, be strengthened, is in the passive voice. That means it is something being done to us. In Ephesians 3.16, Paul prayed that God would grant them according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power in the inner man through His Spirit. There he reveals that as we pray and ask that God's Spirit will strengthen us, he commands us in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled by the Holy Spirit. That is to put ourselves in a position to be yielded to His control. And then here in Ephesians 6.10, we're given a similar statement to be strengthened in the Lord. That is, Christ, too, will strengthen us to be able to carry out what he's called us to do. He will strengthen us as we commune with him. He'll give us strength as we spend time with him, as we pray to him, as we spend time and immerse ourselves in his word. He will strengthen us as we fellowship with other believers. And again, this command here to be strengthened is present tense. Always, continually, make it your habit to be strengthened in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here in this verse, in Ephesians 6.10, it serves really as a link back. A link back to all Paul had instructed them. But it also serves as a link ahead to what he's about to say. For he's saying, be strengthened in the Lord. All the instruction to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, you need Christ's strength to do that. But you also need Christ's strength to be prepared for the battle that you're in. And here in verses 11 through 12, Paul describes the the enemy in this battle, the enemy in this war, and then in verses 13 to 20, how to fight this battle. Today we're going to consider the enemy. We're going to look at uh, who he is and look at his strategy. Let's first consider the nature of the enemy. How is our enemy described? Again, in verse 11, after Paul had called them to be strengthened, he gives a, a second command in verse 11, put on the full armor of God, and the reason so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then he adds again in verse 12, we must be spiritually armed for our ultimate struggle is not with literally blood and flesh. I guess flesh and blood flows better, so they put it that way. But literally in the original, it's blood and flesh, which is referring to whom? People, right? Humans. Humans. Paul saying, ultimately, your enemy, your battle is not with humans, fellow man, but it is with a far more dangerous being. And he uses this term, we struggle. Uh, some of your translations may say wrestle. That term struggle is an interesting word that Paul chose to use because he could have used words like make or agon or stratea. These are Greek words that are associated with combat, with fighting, with struggle. But instead, Paul uses the word pale, which simply means to wrestle. It was a a common popular sport in the first century. And again, this term most commonly referred to wrestling. So why would Paul use that instead of another term that you'd more associate with war? I think he's trying to tell us something. I think he's trying to tell us that we must be ready for close combat, that it will be a personal struggle, that Satan has no problem getting into our kitchen that he is not in some far-off abstract battle, that our enemy is not in some distant land, but he's in our very living room, if you will. We fight an enemy who knows us very well, who understands our weak points. If you've ever been involved in wrestling, that's what's happening a lot, is you're probing, looking for weak points. So in a wrestling match, you're better able to determine what the weaknesses of your opponent are and seek to exploit them. That is what Satan and his demons seek to do. He's identified here in verse 11 that our enemy is none other than the devil. Satan's the most popular uh, name used for him in Scripture, used over 50 times. Uh, Satan means adversary or opponent. Over 30 times the word diabolos or devil is used. That means slanderer. He's also called in the Bible Beelzebul, Belial, the serpent of old, the great dragon, the roaring lion, the, the evil one, the tempter, the accuser, the ruler of this world, the God of this age. Some of you may be more familiar with his name, Lucifer, which is actually a, a tra- Latin translation of Morning Star in Isaiah 14, 12, and only the King James Version and only in that verse is Lucifer uh, used. In Luke eleven fifteen, he's called the ruler of demons. In Revelation 12, it describes how when Satan rebelled and was thrown out of heaven, he took a third of the host of heaven with him. Now, how that all happened and how that came about, we aren't told much about that, but we are told that it did happen. Satan isn't alone. He has many powerful enemies along with him. And in Ephesians 6.12, Paul describes these enemies, these demons as rulers, as powers, as world forces. Paul used titles like these earlier in Ephesians 1.21 and also in Ephesians 3.10. So why didn't he just say demons and evil spirits, though? Why does he use these terms, rulers? powers, world forces of this darkness. I think we're getting a glimpse or he's showing us that, that these demons, there's a hierarchy here. There are demons that, that are more powerful than others, such as Satan, such as these princes of uh, Persia and Greece. And there are also other demons who have lesser roles. But they're all turned by these titles of ruler, of, of authority, of world forces. And all three of these titles are attached to them. This description is characteristic of this darkness. That is that they are in darkness and they bring darkness and they want to keep everyone else in darkness. In Acts twenty-six eighteen, Paul, as he is speaking of uh, the commission that Jesus had given him when he had saved him in Acts 9, in Acts 26, Paul said that Jesus told him to go to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. Colossians 1.13 says, God has rescued the believer from the domain of darkness and transferred him to the kingdom of his beloved son. And at the end of Ephesians 6.12, Paul then describes these beings of darkness as spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. I don't think he's giving a fourth category. I think this is actually summarizing the first three. That all of these demons, all of these uh, beings are spirits. They are evil spirits and they are from the heavenly realms. These are not earthly beings. As we saw in Daniel 10, though, these beings are active on the earth, very active. They're not located in some room out there awaiting an assignment. They are aggressively looking for any opportunity to attack. They are constantly probing for weaknesses. Remember Job 1, 7, right? When Satan appeared before God and God posed the question, from where have you come? You remember Satan's answer to God? Oh, just, just walking around, just roaming about the earth. First Peter 5.8 says this, Of the devil, be on the alert, be of sober spirit, your adversary, the devil, prowls around. That word literally means continue to walk around, continue to roam around like a roaring kitty cat. Lion, like a roaring lion, seeking somebody to be their owner. You guys aren't catching me. Come on, wake up. He's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, to devour. Think about that a minute. A lot of us are familiar with this verse, but do you ever sit and think about what he's actually saying here? That Satan, just like he was in the time of Job, is roaming about the earth and he's not around on a, on a tour as a tourist. He's not checking out all the sights of the earth. I haven't been here in a few thousand years. This is really cool. I forgot about this. That's not what he's roaming the earth for. He's roaming the earth here, as Peter says, a roaring lion. When do lions roar? When they're hungry, when they're on the hunt. He's a roaring lion on the hunt, ready to eat anything that moves. He's on a mission to devour, to destroy, to annihilate. And the object of that mission is you. See, Satan hates you. You're created in the image of God. And whether a believer or not, whether a Christian or not, He despises you and He will show you no mercy. And I'm not trying to be dramatic. We don't have time for drama. This is truth. This is what Scripture says, that we have a dangerous foe. And you need to remind yourself of that. I don't want anyone here to be fooled into thinking that there is not a battle going on right now. And I think... At times for a lot of us, we we can seem to have this goal in life as as it's got to be comfort and ease. that, That my purpose, the thing I'm aiming at is to have a life devoid of difficulty, of trials, of conflict. But if you don't see signs of a spiritual war going on in your life, that can mean one of two things. One is that God in His grace is giving you a brief time of respite. The other is, it could be the devil doesn't see you as a threat. You know, when the Civil War began, some thought it would be a novelty to watch the battle. So they were actually folks who would get set up their tables in their backyards if they heard of a battle coming and they would set up food and kind of spectate, you know, watch it like it's on TV or something. So the battle would take place and before long, it didn't, the battle actually overrun them. And many suffered tragically from that naivete. To be near a battle, so near a battle, and think you won't be affected? Do you realize you are in a battle? Do you remind yourself of that often? Do you understand you live in the trenches? You're not behind the line in a safe place. You're actually in the trenches, whether you realize it or not. Do you grasp the fact that Satan does not give anyone amnesty? He has no mercy, he has no kindness. Oh, that's a a little three-year-old that doesn't know much. I'm going to let them be okay for a while and not come after them. Oh, that that person's in the hospital, right? They're really struggling. I'm going to give them a break. You think that's how he thinks? Not at all. No mercy. No kindness. No grace. He would as soon see you ripped apart and thrust into hell. How are you preparing yourself? How are you being equipped? Is one sermon a week enough? Is a, a few moments of fellowship enough? A few minutes in the word, time and prayer when you can get to it. Do you think that is going to prepare you for this battle with the fierce lion and his minions? You know, a few years ago, there was a mountain lion roaming the streets of Tuhunga. Uh Actually, I think it was in the parking lot at Sizzler, wasn't it? Up there, I'd read about... Uh, Right on Sunland Boulevard, there in Tahunga. They spotted a mountain lion. I guess he heard they had good steak. I don't know, but he's, he's there wandering in the parking lot. Now, when people heard about that, do you think that they were out wandering around carelessly that afternoon? Oh, honey, I hear there's a mountain lion outside. Let's go and check it out. Maybe we can get a picture next to it. People do that in Yellowstone, by the way. Never cease to me. They get out and go stand next to a buffalo. I'm in the car. (laughs) I got a zoom lens, man. I'm fine with that. But you know, yeah, people were on the alert when they heard about this lion roaming about. We have a much more dangerous lion freed on the streets right now. One that we have to recognize and be careful of. This lion is a crafty lion. This lion has had millennia to study us. This lion has a strategy. He has tactics. He has a battle plan. Paul says in verse 11 that we must put on the full armor of God so that we may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That word schemes there is this idea of a procedure, a process, a method, a strategy. Satan has a plan. And as Greg mentioned earlier when he read this text, the, 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 the connotation, the context here, of a, that's a plan, a subtle plan, a deceptive plan. Ultimately, what does Satan want to do? He wants to take glory away from God. That's his ultimate strategy, his ultimate desire. He wants to hinder love for God. He wants to hinder worship of God. He wants to draw honor away from Christ. He wants to destroy the only thing in humanity that was made in the image of God. That is people, you and me. But how does he try to do that? Most people think that, you know, Satan, he's all about temptation, that he's trying to get us to sin. But is that his main Strategy, is that his main plan? Well, our second point this morning, I want to look at a few of his schemes. A few of the ways that Satan has engaged in this battle. What is his strategy? For the Bible tells it to us. We don't have to, to go looking for other places to find it out. God made it clear. And Satan revealed his primary scheme, his primary strategy, right at the beginning of human history. In the very question that he asked Eve, Did God really say In those words, we see that Satan's chief strategy that he hasn't deviated from is to pervert the truth. To get us to question God. To undermine God's Word. To get us to think that God is withholding information or that in some ways he is the liar and not to be trusted. Right? Remember, that's what he said to Eve. Did God really say you can't eat from that tree? He's hiding something from you. You won't die. And ever since that day in the garden, Satan's M.O. has been to corrupt truth, to corrupt it. For if he can get people to believe a lie, then they will not know what God has really said. Then they will not know how to please him. Then they will not know how to be right with him. That's why we see Satan is so active in false teaching and in promoting that. First Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4.1 says, But the Spirit explicitly says in the latter times, Some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Paul describes false teachers in 2 Corinthians 11 when he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. You know, Paul's saying there, You know, Satan isn't going to look like what we see on movies. He's going to look like the clean-cut, godly person, disguising himself as an angel of light. Again, most people think Satan's main focus is tempting people to sin, but that is not his primary activity. You know, Satan knows the Bible. He understands Romans 3, which says there, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not even one. He knows we're all sinners from birth. As David said, "In sin, I was conceived. He understands that the wages of sin is eternal hell." in Romans 6:23. He knows that verse, "The wages of sin is death." You know, Satan, I don't think, really has to worry about whether people were sin or not. What he's worried about is that people might find out how to be forgiven and delivered from that sin. And so his efforts are to distort truth. His efforts are to undermine the Bible. That book is old. That book was written by faulty humans. He wants to lead people to question God's word, or he wants to add to it principles that are not there, or to shade the truth just enough so that we believe a lie. That's why we have to know the word of God, because it is the only source of truth. That's why we must study this book. That's why we must ask God to help us understand it. And that's why we take every opportunity here in this church, whether children's ministry, adult ministry, here Sunday morning, every opportunity to teach from this book. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.24, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be able to teach, be kind to all, able to teach patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance Leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Paul says, Timothy, patiently teach others, because Satan's been about ensnaring them so that they will believe what is not true. So, in patience, help them understand what is true so that perhaps God may allow them to escape the snare that they are in. Now, what primary truth do you think Satan wants to distort? What do you think is the main truth he wants to corrupt? The gospel, message of salvation. He wants to corrupt by adding to it. He wants to weaken it by taking away from it. He wants to keep the world blinded to it. Just as 2 Corinthians 4, 3 says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan's developed many religious systems, all of which bear some similarity to the truth, but all corrupted enough to keep someone from being saved. The primary corruption he uses to blind humanity to the gospel is the lie that human effort can save, is the lie that good works or deeds performed can make one right with God. Every religious system... Every single one except for biblical Christianity says you have to do something to be right with God. There's some activity, some work, either one time or many times you need to perform in order to get to heaven, in order to reach nirvana, in order to be saved. Satan adds works to the gospel so that he can take away from the only work which brings salvation. And that is a work not done by any human, but one, Jesus Christ. His work on the cross is the only work that saves. But see, Satan doesn't want anyone to rely on the death of Jesus alone to save. And so we have all of these religious systems, all of these beliefs, many which acknowledge Christ as a good teacher, many which even call him a savior. But they add something. Yes, Christ is your savior, but you need to pray or do these things to get yourself in a position so that he will save you. You need to be savable. But as Paul said in Galatians 2.21, if righteousness comes through the law, that is works or deeds, then Christ died needlessly. You know, when I talk to folks about this and ask them, you know, what they think will happen to them when they die or if they're standing before God in heaven. And he says, why should I let you in heaven? What would they say? And almost everybody, myself included, at at one time would say, well, I've done enough good or haven't done that much bad. Right. We, We point to deeds and effort and works. Any of you ever have that? Response? It's a couple of you. Okay. You know, the first thing I say in response to that is I ask them, well, why did Jesus die then? What was the point? What was the point? If there's some way that you can make yourself savable, if there's some deeds or actions you can perform where God will say, oh, I'm so glad they did that. It's okay now. All those sins you committed against me, don't worry about them. You've done enough good things that I'm going to accept you now. Why did he send his son? Why did Jesus become a man and humiliate himself and die on a cross then? For nothing. But we know that's not true. But see, Satan wants to pervert the truth so that he diminishes the power of the cross. So that he blinds us to that. He not only seeks to thwart the gospel in its message, but also in that message going forth. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Paul says, Several times Satan had hindered him. From getting to the Thessalonians. Or in uh, Revelation 2.10. Jesus said to the suffering church of Smyrna. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold the devil is about to cast some of you into prison. So that you will be tested. And you will have tribulation for ten days. There Jesus himself said. Satan's activity and persecution. And seeking to thwart the gospel message from going out. Again Satan will do all that he can. To prevent the truth from being spoken and proclaimed. So we must know the gospel. We must understand the gospel. We must continually remind ourselves and meditate on it so that we are giving others a message of truth. The more active you are in proclaiming it, the more you will feel the enemy's breath down your neck. But don't let that stop you. Another scheme Satan employs is temptation. He's called the tempter in Matthew 4.3. That's where, the place where he even attempted Christ to sin. And notice his tactics there, where he, he sought to prey on Christ's humanity, his weakness, his hunger. Satan also twisted Scripture to try to get Jesus to presume on God. He also tried to tempt Him with promises of glory. And I say these things because if Satan... These were the tactics he used on Jesus, knowing who Jesus was. These are definitely things that he will use to attack you. He will seek to exploit your weaknesses your frailties he will seek to confuse you about scripture he will entice you of promises of good things because again remember this lion is a crafty lion he will even use things that appear good to try to draw you away from trusting and relying on god if you don't have your armor on as we sung about a few moments ago you can easily be swayed by his deceptions And one of those very subtle and covert schemes that he uses is to get people to believe that Satan is the one responsible for your sin. He's willing to even accept responsibility. He'll say, he wants to confuse us, to to make us think that he is the one responsible for our sin. Look at James 3 a minute. I I want you to see this. Because there are many who blame their sin on Satan, on the devil. That, you know, if the devil wasn't around, if his demons weren't tempting me, I wouldn't have done it. I'm a good person. I wouldn't have committed such a thing. It's his fault. There are others who believe that they struggle with a particular sin because they are possessed or dominated or tormented by a demon. Again, putting the blame and responsibility outside of themselves. I've read several books that describe how they describe to be delivered from the demon of alcoholism or lust or abuse or pride or anger or murder. I read in one book where the author described how he delivered a child from demons named defiance and self-will. But who does the Bible say is responsible for your sin? We are. Are we told anywhere that a demon is to blame for a person's sin or anyone else for that matter, for a person's sin? Yes, they tempt. Yes, they want us to sin. They'll do many things to get us there. But the responsibility for that sin is ultimately on us. Are we told anywhere that to deal with a person's sin, we must cast a demon out of them to do that? That the reason they're sinning is because of that demon, if they're a believer. You won't find that. Look at James 3.13 for a minute. Who among you is wise and understanding, James asks? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. Stop there for a minute. James here characterizes a a wisdom which leads to sin as earthly, as natural, as even demonic. He seems to be saying, well, yeah, the source of that sin in your life is demonic. I knew it. I knew my selfishness and my pride couldn't have been from me. I knew it had to have been a demon. But look a few verses later in James chapter 4, verse 1, where he asks this question. What is the source of conflicts and quarrels among you? Is not the source Satan, demons, and evil spirits? You guys need to catch me. What did he say? Is not the source your pleasures, which wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Again, we understand Satan will tempt us. He'll bring circumstances in our lives, situations, perhaps moving other people to tempt us. But notice the one to blame here. James says, the reason you're fighting is because of you. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, James said, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by Satan. Thank you. No. But by what? His own lusts. Again, that doesn't remove Satan as a tempter, but it does remove him as the one responsible for the desire, the drawing over. That's from us. That's within our own hearts. Satan didn't put it there, but he knows it's there. Satan plays to those desires, but the way to deal with the sin is not to blame him. It's to repent. Revelation 2.13, Jesus is speaking to the church of Pergamum. Notice what he says to them. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He's telling them at that point in time, Satan had actually established a beachhead in Pergamum. And Jesus says, I know he's there. And I know he's brought persecution. And then he continues to say, But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Jesus is saying... Satan's not only brought persecution, but he's infiltrated your church with false teachers. And those false teachers have drawn some away into acts of immorality, into acts of a disbelieving God, of worshiping things other than God. And notice Jesus' response to how to deal with that. Again, where Jesus said, I know Satan is in your midst. This is what Jesus said and how they're to respond. Repent, therefore. Or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make sword with them, those who are committing these sinful acts, with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I find this very interesting. Again, even though Satan recognized and told, or uh, Jesus recognized and told them, Satan has established a stronghold in your location, and that people are sinning as a result of his false teaching. Jesus didn't then tell them, so you need to bind Satan. You need to cast him out of the church. You need to rebuke the evil spirits of the false teaching and temptation. Instead, Jesus said, repent from the sin. Turn away from the sin. Submit to me. Resist the devil's temptations. Again, demons are not ultimately the reason for your sin. They can be very strong tempters, but the answer in dealing with sin is not to go looking around for some demon or spirit or anywhere else to blame. It is to repent. It is to confess that sin to God, to accept responsibility for it, to ask God to forgive you, and then to take tangible steps to deal with that sin by His grace. It is to flee temptation and pursue Christ. It is to work on the affections of the heart because that's where the problem is. I often use the illustration of um, if I were to come over to your house and bring a plate of uncooked eggplant to you, I don't think many of you would be enticed to eat that. Unless you're strange. But, no, I know some of you like eggplant, sorry. Um, I hate it. But if I brought a, a freshly baked plate of brownies to your home and you smelled those brownies... Guess what? I don't have to stick one in your mouth and make you eat it. You're drawn to it. It's the same thing with sin. I've got to deal with my inward attraction to it. And repent from that and ask God to help me with that. Not blame the person who brought the plate of brownies. Even though you can nicely tell me, you know what, don't bring those around, please. <laughs> but see, Satan won't be nice about that. He'll continue to bring whatever it is you love. Whatever it is you desire and the way to deal with it isn't to, to bind and cast him out. It is to ask God to help you to repent of that sin, to ask to be strengthened in the Lord and to put on your armor, which we'll talk about in coming weeks. Satan will seize upon these things. Another strategy that he uses, another scheme, is that he seeks to sow discord and disunity among God's people. Ephesians 4.27 says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity or literally a place to reside. He's saying there that if we do not deal with our anger, our sinful anger, that Satan can use that to bring further temptation for other sins or to even use you in a way to tempt someone else to sin because of your anger. He knows how to coordinate circumstances to exploit that. He can also exploit unforgiveness. In 2 Corinthians 2, there was a situation that Paul describes where there had been a brother who had been sinning in the church, and he repented of that sin, but there are many in the church who would not forgive him. And so Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 10, "...but one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes." You know what Paul's saying there? I seek to forgive because if I don't, if you don't, then Satan will take advantage of that. He will use that bitterness and that unforgiveness to drive a wedge within his people. When there is disunity here, when there is sin against one another, we are giving Satan the very tools to tear down our own house. We must deal with our sin against one another quickly and biblically, not just for our own peace, so that also we don't give the enemy an opportunity or advantage within our body. Because he knows if he can sow discord and disunity in the church, he can blunt our message. He can undermine what Jesus said in John when he said, By this all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. But if there's anger, bitterness, or any other sin that Satan can use to exploit and others in the world see that, what message are we sending? In addition to promoting disunity, Satan also attacks the church's leaders. It says in 1 Timothy 3 that an elder is not to be a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. The very next verse, Paul says the elder must have a good reputation for those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Again, Satan knows that if he can take out a leader, he can have an impact on the church. And that's why we have to be very careful in selecting leaders. That's why we must be praying diligently for them. Are you doing that? Pray diligently for them. That's why we need to help our leaders be accountable. I I say this often and I mean it. Go up and ask an elder or leader that you know of here how you can be praying for them, what they are struggling with. Help them be transparent. Guys, those of you in leadership, be accountable. Satan's very patient. He'll let, you know, if there's a situation in your life that's going on, he'll let that fester and grow for a while before he sees his opportunity to attack. Those little sins, if you will, those little temptations. Don't let those... Gain a foothold. Look at Second Corinthians 12 for a moment where we we'll see another scheme which Satan uses, his spiritual battle. Not only uses the perverting, you know, he only seeks to pervert the truth, to thwart the gospel from being proclaimed, to thwart the message of the gospel. He not only uh, has the scheme of promoting disunity and sowing discord. He not only has a scheme of bringing temptation, but also one of his schemes is affliction. We clearly see this in Job's life, don't we? Satan brought tremendous affliction upon him. He lost his crops, his livestock, his servants, even his children. God took out his own kids in order to get Job to curse God. He will use affliction. We see this all through the Gospels. People being tormented by demons with illness and madness, epilepsy, self-injury and the like. In Luke 13, Jesus healed a woman who had been bent over for a number of years Excuse me, because of an illness. And Jesus said of this woman, Satan had bound her for 18 long years with this affliction. Paul tells of an affliction at the hands of Satan in 2 Corinthians 12 when he says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, and he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Interesting passage. A lot of theories about who the messenger of Satan was, whether that was a health issue or something else. I I think it was uh, uh, through people that... Satan was working to torment him. We aren't necessarily given specific details here, but the issue is Paul recognized he was being tormented, afflicted by a messenger of Satan. And Paul's response here, he begs God, he implores him three times, God, take this affliction from me. It hurts. I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. It's painful. Remove it, please. Please, please. Three different times. And God said, no. No. No, Paul. I, I'm using this in your life. That, that my grace is enough. It's sufficient for you. I, I want my power to be revealed through your weakness. If you have no struggle or difficulty in your life, all that you've been exposed to, all that I've used you for, your pride's gonna blow you up, man. So this is for your good, Paul. I'm leaving this one in your life. It's amazing to think about what even Satan intends for evil, God uses for good. Our enemy is constantly on the offensive. We must be aware of his schemes. That's why we've talked about a few this morning, just so that we're all aware that he uses affliction. He uses trials. He seeks to sow discord and unity. He tempts us. He hinders the gospel. He seeks to pervert the truth of the gospel, to undermine the word of God. These are all his various schemes. And know that he will go after you and he will use any means necessary to keep you from knowing God's word, to keep you from hearing the gospel, to keep you from understanding the gospel. And if he can't keep you from understanding the gospel or keep you from salvation, he will do whatever he can to prevent you from advancing it. And though Satan and his legions are a terrible enemy, as we sung earlier, we are not abandoned in this war. Remember, Paul began this final charge with, Be strengthened in the Lord and in the power of His might. God is on your side. Seek to be strengthened in Him. Abide in Him. Commune with Him. Trust in Him. Then Paul gives a second instruction in how to battle the great foe that we face, and that's what we'll look at next time. But before leaving this topic this morning, we all must remember, and I hope you've got this from from what we've been talking about, is we are all in this war. The lines have been drawn. God is on one side and Satan, his demons, are on the other. And there is no Switzerland here. There's no neutral site, no middle ground, no third category, no pacifists, no spectators like those in the Civil War. And the critical question you must ask yourself, and please don't be distracted by anything else right now, just listen to me. This one question, if anything that you hear this morning, ask yourself this question, which side are you on? That's all that matters. John drew the line clearly in First John 3, 7 when he said, Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil is sin from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed, God's seed, abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God, meaning cannot have a lifestyle of practicing sin. By this, the children of God and the children of, de- of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Again, John says this is obvious. There's two categories. You're either a child of the devil, lifestyle of sin against God, or you're a child of God. There's no third category category that he gives are you a genuine follower of jesus christ a genuine follower of jesus christ have you truly turned from your sin and placed your trust in him do you really love him with all your heart do you have an affection for him only you can answer this question We sung about this also earlier, that He is our great delight. Is He your great delight? When you think of your top five friends in the whole world, is Jesus really on that list? Is there an affection for Him? Is He at the top of the list? The greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Do you sincerely long to spend time with Him? I know it can be difficult, but is there a longing for it? Is your chief desire to please him, to obey him? Do you make every effort to be with his people? To not just be a church, but to get involved, to serve, to be actively looking for ways to help others love Jesus more. Now notice I didn't ask if you believe you are saved. I didn't ask if you know the gospel. I didn't even ask if you think Jesus is your savior. Do you truly know him? Is the question. Is there evidence of change in your life? That's how you know. Your affections should be moving the direction towards loving Him more. You should see God changing you with those desires we talked about earlier, the desires for sin. Those should be diminishing. Sometimes they don't go all the way away. There's a process. I understand that. But we should see growth. Is there a passion for Him? Because don't think just because you're not a Satanist or a murderer or a thief or whatever, that you're not against God. Don't think that because you believe you're a good person or you haven't done anything really bad or you've done a lot of good things, that that means you're okay with God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, but through me, through me, Jesus said. Have you put your trust in Jesus alone, in the cross, on his death, on your behalf? Paul drew the same line that John did in Ephesians 2 when he said, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Another title for Satan. And then he says this, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. There Paul's saying, You know what? If you're not... Trusting in God, if he hasn't saved you, you are the one who is a child of wrath. You are the one who is living in disobedience against God. You are the one who's dead in trans- trespasses and sins. And Paul said, we're all there, but God in his mercy, it says right after that, <laughs> because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ. Right, grace, you've been saved. God sent His own Son, Jesus, into the world to rescue us. To rescue us from Satan's clutches. To rescue us from our bondage to sin. To free those who were in bondage to Satan. The great rescuer of souls came to earth with a peace accord. And you know whose signature was first on that peace accord? It was Jesus's, in His own blood. And He's offering anyone amnesty, freedom a relationship with Him if they would sign the other side in repentance and belief. And then Jesus will transfer you from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. But until that moment, until you give your life to Him, you're at the mercy of a powerful and evil being who will do everything possible to keep you on the path to hell. He'll even give you what you want as long as it keeps you from God. I remember a story, I think my dad who's here, I think you were the one that told me this. A popular rock singer from the 70s who recounted a, a vision that he saw early in his career. In this vision, a spirit told him that if he would dedicate his life to Satan, that he would get riches, women, fame, whatever he wanted. That's exactly what happened. He did and ended up with a very successful career. Satan had paved this man's path to hell with money, fame, sex, fun, and you know what? Satan has the same deal for anyone else who will take it. But Satan can only offer the riches of earth, Jesus offers the riches of heaven. Satan can only give temporary pleasures, but Jesus gives himself. Let's pray. Lord, we are caught in a battle. Lord, there are only two sides, and I pray. Lord, that those who don't know you, that Satan continues to seek to blind from the truth, that you would open their eyes as you did others, did the rest of us, not because of any good in us, but because of your kindness. Lord, I pray for those of us who are your children, that, Lord, we know you have won the victory, but we are still in mop-up operations. We are still battles in the middle of battles to be fought. and Lord, there are still many perishing souls that need to come to know You. Lord, may You use us whatever way You see fit. Strengthen us, Lord. Use us to proclaim Your truth, to live it out. Lord, help those of us who are suffering affliction now or temptation, or whether it's from Satan or not. Lord, we don't know all the time, but Lord, I pray that You would Move us to repent where needed, Lord, to be strengthened in you where needed. Lord, to always, always rely on your word, for we know that you have spoken to us through it. Thank you for it. We pray all these things in the name of our great Captain, Jesus Christ. Amen.